I'll be reading from the book of Matthew. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said, come, see the place where he lay. This is God's word. Please be seated. Thanks, Chad. Morning, everybody. Happy Easter. We are glad that you are here. For those of you who are new, my name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors and elders here at uh, Redemption Arcadia, and uh, some people call Easter Sunday the Super Bowl Sunday for churches, and this is a big Sunday for us, and so we're glad that you are here. We are actually starting a brand new series this morning. Some people think that's kind of an odd day to start a new series is on Easter Sunday, but uh, we think it's a perfect day to start a five-week series about who Jesus really is. The title of the series is, Who Is This? Dot, dot, dot. And then every week we're going to fill in a blank with uh, another aspect of who Jesus is. And so today we're going to talk about who is this that rose from the grave. So Easter Sunday would be an appropriate day to talk about that. And so uh, let me pray, and then we're going to get into our message, and we're going to acknowledge the fact that this is a special Sunday and talk a little bit about that as well. Let's pray together. Holy and gracious God, we are thankful for your love for us that's been demonstrated through your son. Not only that he died on the cross, but also that you raised him from the dead to give us eternal life and that he's going to come again to make things right and to make things new. We are thankful for that. God, I just pray that uh, as we look at your word and we look at the story of the resurrection and the second coming, that God, you'd open our hearts and our minds, our eyes, and our ears to all that you have for us this morning, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. I want to acknowledge that essentially there are three perspectives here today. We don't do this every Sunday, but because this is Easter and it's a special day, we just want to make sure that you know, that we know that you're here. Uh, generally speaking, there would be three perspectives here. Uh, first of all, there's the perspective of the person who is in church virtually every Sunday. You're committed to Jesus, you're committed to the church, you you get it, you know what Easter is all about, it's about the resurrection, and, and you know this is a big day, and so we acknowledge that you're here, thank you for being here, uh, we are happy that you are here, welcome. Uh, we also acknowledge that on Easter Sunday we get sort of the casual church attender, somebody who isn't necessarily here every Sunday, but you know that Easter's kind of an important Sunday, you check your calendar and you, and you come on Easter, and Maybe you know about the resurrection, maybe you're still a little bit confused about the resurrection, you're sort of in limbo, we're not sure about that, but we want to acknowledge your presence as well. Thank you for being here, we are glad that you are here. And then there's that third perspective, that's the, how did I get roped into this perspective? Uh, you're never in church on Sunday morning, and you're not exactly sure why you're here now. Uh, maybe you're doing a, a favor for a family member. Uh, maybe you're in from out of town and you had no choice because there's only one car where you are and you happen to get into it at the wrong time. Or 
Or maybe you lost a bet and you're paying off the bet this morning. You know, if you lose, you have to come to church with me on Easter Sunday. And you were sure that you were going to win, but you lost. And so now you're here and you got to listen to me for a while. Well, guess what? Welcome. We are glad that you are here and we're thankful that you are here as well. And, and I want to um, make sure that you understand that the reason we acknowledge all of you is that we're going to talk to all three groups this morning. Uh, sometimes on Easter, what happens is you sort of isolate some people in order to talk to other people. I think what we have to say is going to be for all three of these perspectives. First of all, for those of you who are here every Sunday and think, okay, I've got this figured out, I know what this is about, I think that you're going to be encouraged today by what we have to say, and there's going to be a great deal of hope that you're going to be able to latch on to in our message today. Uh, for those of you who are casual church attenders, we think that what we have to say today might motivate you, but also there's going to be some hope that you're going to be able to latch on to in this message. And then for those of you who are here maybe for your first time or for the first time in a very long time in a church anywhere, uh, what we have to say today might challenge you a little bit, and that's a good thing. It's going to challenge you in a good way, but also you're going to be able to find some hope in today's message that you're going to be able to hang on to. And so I hope you see that there is a thread or a theme of hope for all people who are here this morning. And we're going to end our message really just hammering away on this idea of hope. In any event, we do not believe that this is an accident or a mistake that you are here on this particular Sunday uh, to praise and worship with us and to hear this message and to walk through this service. Uh, we believe that God is sovereign, and for whatever reason he has, maybe it's a sense of humor, maybe he's really trying to confront you with something, whatever reason he has, you're here for a reason, and we want to honor that. Uh, one other thing before we get started, no matter why you are here today, whatever group you fall into, uh, I think that essentially we can all agree on a couple of things. The first thing is that the world is pretty messed up, right? It's messed up. And I think that we can also agree that if you just, just empirical observation, if you just look around at the world around us, you would also admit that people are pretty messed up as well. And if you're really honest with yourself, you would recognize that you also have some issues as well. You may not like to admit that, you may not want to self-disclose that, but all of us in our heart of hearts, we know that we have issues. I've got issues of my own. Jackie will set up a booth, my wife, afterwards, if you want to find out exactly what they are. We all have issues. And, and, and the point this morning that we want to make is that Jesus is not only involved in that mess, but he's the answer to the mess. He's the antidote to the mess. And the whole purpose of Jesus is that he's going to make things right and he's going to make things new. Eventually, that's where we're going to end up this morning. The first thing that we really should get out of the way is this. Easter is about one thing and one thing only. It is about the resurrection of Jesus after he had been certified as dead for three days in his grave, and now he has risen from that grave. He is alive. I, I want to make this very clear. As Christians, as Bible-centered Christians, we do not believe that Easter is about springtime, although it usually happens during springtime. We don't believe that Easter is about eggs and bunnies, although we like eggs and bunnies. Personally, I like mine fried and chocolate, okay? That would be the, that would be the eggs fried, not the bunnies fried, and the bunnies chocolate. But it's not about just the eggs and the bunnies, and it's not about 
being a metaphor for renewal or kindness or karma or a good vibe. It's not about any of those things. It is about the miraculous and historical event of Jesus rising from the grave after having been dead. And it is the um, most attested to event in, that we have uh, in antiquity in terms of history. Uh, not only biblical history, but also extra-biblical, or what we call uh, history outside of the Bible, recognizes that this event actually did happen. So it's not even about whether or not we believe the resurrection happened. It's about what does it mean and what does it mean to us specifically. That's what we want to talk to you about this morning. So here we go. We're going to walk through some passages that will kind of tell the story in a truncated way. And if you have your Bibles and you want to follow along, turn to the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to look at uh, four different things in Matthew. Matthew would be in the New Testament, so if you just open your Bible to the middle and then go to the right two or three hundred pages, eventually you'll run into the New Testament, and Matthew is the first book in the New Testament. And we're going to start off in chapter 16 of Matthew. And then later, as we get towards the end of the message, we're going to be in the book of Revelation, Revelation is very easy to find in the Bible if you're new to the Bible. Uh, it's right in the, at the back of the Bible. It's the last book, and we're going to be in the last uh, couple of chapters of Revelation. Yes, we're going to talk about Revelation. Scares some people, I know. So look at Matthew chapter 16, verse 21. Matthew has 28 chapters, and this is already in chapter 16, where Matthew says, he writes... From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, those would be the professional religious people of the day who did not like Jesus, and that he was going to be killed, and on the third day he would be raised. There's three things that I want to mention to you about this passage. First of all, this idea that we're in the 16th chapter of a 28-chapter book, Matthew, um, this is kind of interesting to me. Jesus lived for, th for more than 30 years. He ministered for three years of his life. Yet what most people don't realize is that nearly half of all the gospel stories are actually dedicated to the last week of Jesus' life and this theme that he's going to be raised from the dead. That is a lot of material that is devoted to this. The problem, and the reason I bring this up, is that the problem is that in our culture, uh, the way most people think about the stories and the Gospels of Jesus is they think that 90 or even 100% of the Gospel stories of Jesus are, are just stories of Jesus loving and healing people and, and, and teaching people. And, and, and then there are those passages where he's frolicking through the meadows with the wind in his feathered hair. And I will tell you that with the exception of the wind in his feathered hair and the frolicking in the, me in the meadows, that's actually not in the Gospels. The rest of that stuff is in the Gospels. He hung out with people, he healed people, he loved on people, and he taught people. But it's only about 60% of the Gospels that describes that. The rest of it is really about the last week of his life when he enters Jerusalem, when they try him and they crucify him, they execute him, and then he's raised from the dead and he ascends to heaven. A, vast, a very large part of the Gospels are actually about that. And so the reason I bring that up is that this must be important. The last week of his life and the, the cross and the resurrection must be important for the Gospel stories to spend so much time talking about it. And that leads to our second thing. What was the primary reason for the birth of Jesus? 
Again, there's a lot of speculation about what the primary reason was for Jesus to be born. And I would suggest to you that if you read the Gospels, you recognize that what people say in culture is not necessarily true. In fact, Jesus was born specifically for the purpose of dying. He was born to die and then to be raised from the dead to give us eternal life. And then, not only that, but to come again. Y'all have heard that that churchy Christian, uh, Christian ease thing, the second coming of Jesus. Yes, it's true. He was born to die, to be raised, and then to come again. See, many believe that Jesus was born primarily to teach. And yes, he did teach, but that's not what he was born primarily to do. They think he was born to be a rabbi. They think he was born to be a good moral example. They think he was born to be a cuddly, snuggly baby at Christmas time. And I will tell you that I've run into people who would prefer to just leave Jesus in the crib at Christmas time so that he doesn't bother anybody, okay? And that's not why he was born. Uh, some people think that Jesus was born specifically so that he could help us win a religious argument. Not why he was born. Some people think that Jesus was born so that you have a, a spiritual insurance policy in your hip pocket. But that's not why he was born either. He was born to die on the cross, which gives us forgiveness of our sins, and then to be raised from the grave to give us eternal life, and then to come again so that he can take this messed up world and set things right and make things new and perfect and wonderful. The third thing out of this passage that I want to mention is that Jesus predicts that he's going to raise, he'd be raised from the grave, that he's going to rise again. He predicts that, and in fact, in our second passage, he says the same thing. If you look at Matthew Chapter 17, verses 22 and 23. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. So there's that theme again. Jesus is going to be raised on the third day. But here Matthew inserts this uh, this idea that the disciples heard this and they were greatly distressed. Now, why were they so distressed? Jesus just said, I'm going to be killed, but yes, I'm going to be raised from the grave. That should be good news to them. Why were they distressed? I would suggest to you that the reason they were distressed is that they do what you and I do often with God. We quit listening to God way too soon. God has something challenging to tell us. God has something that he's confronting us with. God has something that he's telling us that we don't necessarily want to hear. And what happens, I do this all the time myself, is I tend to turn God off before he gets to the end, which is often where the good stuff lies. How often do we shut down God before he's able to tell us how this story is going to turn out? That's a problem. And I do that all the time. I'll listen to God tell me that I've got a challenging season coming up. I'll read a passage of scripture that talks about how I'm going to suffer and be persecuted as a Christian. And I just tend to tune that down and tune it out. And I would suggest to you that that's a problem with me, not with God, and that it's my loss. And I actually had this really come to life for me just this weekend. There's a guy named uh, Charlie Robeson. Uh, he's in prison in Florence, and he was sentenced to 17 years. And he is in his 14th year of serving his uh, prison term. Uh, Charlie, I would consider one of my very best friends. I have known Charlie for eight years. So I have only known Charlie within the context of prison. And yes, I would call him one of my best friends. It's not like we go out to coffee together or anything like that. 
but we do see each other once every six or eight weeks. We write each other at least once a week. We stay in contact with each other. And Charlie is a great example of understanding how to listen to God all the way through the bad stuff so that he can get to the good stuff. Uh, when Charlie was out on bail and he had been convicted and, and uh, he knew that he was going to be sentenced and that his sentence was going to be anywhere from 10 to 24 years, Charlie had the opportunity to take his family and leave the country and get out of this altogether. And rather than doing that, he prayed about it, he and his family talked about it, and he said, nope, God is calling me to be obedient to this. I have to go and serve my term. And the reason is because God has something good for me even in prison. And even if it isn't that great in prison, I know that on the other side of prison, there's going to be a celebration, there's going to be renewal, there's going to be something good. God keeps telling me that there is a purpose in me going through this bad stuff. And just yesterday, I got a letter from him that he actually wrote the morning of Good Friday, which I think is interesting that the whole system was able to get me this letter in, in about 36 hours, uh, but, it, but it was. And he was talking about how Good Friday is a great example of this. Uh, don't leave Jesus on the cross on Good Friday. Don't end the story there. Don't quit listening on Good Friday. We need to get to Sunday when he is risen, when he has been resurrected to new life, which gives us new life as well. And he says, I see a lot of my story in Good Friday and Easter Sunday. I look at my 17-year sentence as Good Friday, and I look at the end of my sentence and being released as Easter Sunday. And he says, I'm committed to doing this, and I'm going to stay, and I'm going to do it as well as I can because I know God has something good for me on the other side. So I think the uh, disciples just quit listening too soon. Anyway, the resurrection theme continues. If you turn over to Matthew chapter 20, verses 17 through 19. Here we go again. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man, that would be Jesus, will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. So there's that theme again. At least three times now we've seen Jesus has predicted that he's going to be raised from the grave after he's crucified. Now you turn over to Matthew 28, and you get the payoff verses on the resurrection story. Matthew 28, verses 1 through 10. It's uh, what was read by Chad earlier, plus a few more verses. Now watch what happens here. I'm going to read through this and make some comments about it that I think will help us understand what's going on here. Verse 1, Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. I want to stop right there. Uh, a lot of people have accused Christianity of making up this story of the resurrection. That a bunch of Christians got together 2,000 years ago and they made up this story that Jesus somehow exited the grave and, and, and that it was all a fabrication. Here's the problem with that theory. What we need to understand is that in the, in the first century, especially in that culture, if you were a woman, you were considered not even a second-class citizen, but you were, were, you were considered a non-persona. You could not even give testimony in a court. 
in front of judges as a woman, you were not to be believed about anything. So here's my point about that. If you're in the first century and you're trying to come up with a lie or a conspiracy, the last thing you would do is have as your chief witnesses women. Yet these women are the first and chief witnesses to the resurrection. It is not a good idea to build your case in the first century on the testimony of women, but that's exactly what happens here. And so I would suggest to you that that's pretty good evidence that this is in fact true. Verse 2. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. That appearance of, of lightning and white as snow is Old Testament in, uh, imagery for the purity and holiness and victory of God. So what Matthew, the writer of this gospel, is saying here is there's no mistake. This is all about God and his power and his victory over death. Verse 4, And for fear of him, the guards uh, trembled and became like dead men. Here's something else we need to understand about that first century context. Roman guards were considered the toughest guys who ever walked the face of the earth. They were mean, they were tough, they were, the, they were a fighting machine. They were, here's an old reference, but they were Jack Bauer on steroids, okay? They never slept, their cell phones never ran out of battery, nothing, okay? These guys were tough, yet these guys were scared to death at what had happened. So again, just an indication of how significant this event is. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen as he said. Come see the place where he lay. He is risen. Those are the three best words of Easter Sunday. He is risen. And I would add to that, here it is. Proof positive that Jesus is not a liar. He said he was going to rise from the dead. He's not a liar. Um, there's a lot of people in our culture today who will say, Jesus was a really good teacher, but that's all he was. Well, here's the problem with that. Jesus taught that he is God. If you read through John chapter 10, he says, I and the Father are one. We are one and the same. We are exactly the same. We are the same essence. He was telling them, I am God. He taught that I am God. And so I would suggest that if somebody says that Jesus is a really good teacher but has not given their life to Jesus, there's an inconsistency there that is very difficult to explain. If you acknowledge Jesus is a good teacher, why aren't you following his teachings? I think that's a fair question. This is the old um, uh, uh, C.S. Lewis line that Jesus is either a, a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord, and he really doesn't leave the first two options open to us. I'm quoting now out of the writings of C.S. Lewis, which was from maybe 60 years ago, but it's a great quote. He writes this, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell, a liar. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, 
or else he is a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come away with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us. So he is the Lord. Continuing with this passage in verse 7. Then the angel says to the women, Go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell the disciples. They were filled with fear, yet they had great joy. Those are two interesting emotions to be mixed together and seemingly are contrary. I mean, I was trying to think of ways that I would be both fearful and filled with great joy, and I came up with a couple. Uh, first of all, um, if I get on a roller coaster, like a really good roller coaster, there is, a, there is a sense of trepidation and fear as I get on that roller coaster. Can I at least get an amen from a few of you people that see roller coasters? Like, okay, right? But if you don't overcome that fear and get on the roller coaster, you're never going to experience the exhilaration and the joy of being on the roller coaster, right? So roller coaster for me is both fear and joy. And here's the other uh, situation that came up. Jackie, my wife, is not as pleased with this one, but I think it also tells the story. When Jackie comes up and gives me a kiss... That is great joy. But then right after the kiss, if she says, Frank, I need you to do something for me, that tends to invoke some measure of fear in me because I'm not exactly sure what's coming next. So both the joy and the fear there. Now, she's not here, so I could say that. Um, she'll download it off the Internet, though. Anyway, now why would these women be filled with both joy and fear? Well, here's why. Yes, Jesus did predict that he was going to rise from the grave. But even though he predicted that, when you walk into a tomb where there's supposed to be a dead body and that body's not there and there's no explanation other than the fact that the body got up and walked out, that should create at least a, a little bit of trembling and fear in you. But at the same time, when they saw that the body was not there, they recalled what Jesus had said. I'm going to be raised from the grave and that would invoke great joy as well. It's true! He's really alive! Let's go find him, maybe, okay? Well, they didn't have to look very far. Look at verse 9. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. I have to tell you, I find humor in that, okay? This guy was dead, now he's alive, and that's the best thing he can come up with to say to them? Greetings! <laughs> Why not, hey, look at me, man, I'm alive, here I am. I told you so, okay. Why, why didn't he have something, I don't know. It's just, maybe it's just godly humor there, okay. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Um, they literally laid down and grabbed his feet. Now, you might think, well, that's kind of an odd thing. But again, first century culture, if you grab somebody's feet, that was symbolic of worship, praise, and total submission to him as Lord and God. They were saying, we recognize now, <laughs> you got raised from the dead. You must be God, okay? And then verse 10. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid and go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. So again, here's the women going to tell the men, we saw Jesus and the men went, okay? And they went and saw them. So here you go. He says, do not be afraid. 
if there's one emotion that can overcome fear, it would be the emotion of hope. And that's what the resurrection gives us. It gives us hope, and we're going to talk a lot more about that in just a minute. But the point I want to make now is that Jesus is alive. He is alive. He's done what nobody has ever done before. And I know some of you might say, now, wait a minute. We have on record that a few other people have been raised from the dead. There's that Lazarus guy, for instance. And I, you're right. Other people have been raised from the dead. But Jesus has done what nobody has ever done before. He's still alive. Lazarus and the others, they all died again and stayed dead physically. Jesus is still alive, so he's done what nobody else has done, and then he ascended to heaven. And so Jesus is still alive. What is that about? What does it mean? Is there something else? I'm really glad you asked, because there is. Turn to Revelation chapter 19. This is the Jesus that many people don't talk about, but we need to. And the reason I think we need to is because this is when Jesus comes again in final victory. This is the second coming. And I think that all of us could agree that we could use Jesus back here again to kind of set things right. And so we, we see him coming again in Revelation chapter 19, starting at verse 11. This is the Apostle John who wrote the Gospel of John as well as uh, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, those letters. Uh, he is describing this vision and conversation that he had with Jesus. And we're at the end here. Starting with verse 11, John writes, and he's, and he's talking about the future now. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. Again, uh, Old Testament imagery, white being holy, purity, and, and a sign of victory. And the one sitting on the white horse is called faithful and true. That would be Jesus. He is faithful and true. And I want you to think about this in terms of our relationships. Um, think about even our best relationships, like mine would be with Jackie. It's my best human relationship. Even that relationship, I could not argue, is 100% faithful and true, although I would like it to be. We're both fallen, we're both sinners, and so we do not measure up in that regard. But Jesus is 100% faithful and true, and he is going to bring with him 100% faithfulness and truthfulness to all of our relationships. And I think we could agree that is going to be a good, good thing. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and, and on his head are many diadems, and he, has, uh, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. Now let me talk a little bit about this, because, again, we live in a culture that doesn't like judgment and making uh, judgments about things. Um, and I understand that, and one of the reasons is because our judgments are rarely pure and 100% accurate and right. But this idea that Jesus has eyes like flames is the uh, biblical writer's way of telling us that his judgments are going to be perfect and true. And, and again, I know that, 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 that doesn't sound good to some of us. We don't like judgment, but I want you to look at it in these terms here. All of us like justice. We all want justice. We all think that there isn't enough justice in the world. 
You can see it on the news. You can hear it in conversations. This is unjust. That is unjust. Some churches have justice ministries trying to bring justice to the world. Uh, we even talk about how in the United States, this system of justice that we have, which is the best thing going on the face of the planet, yet all of us acknowledge even our justice system isn't very good and falls short most of the time. So we all want justice, and we all like justice. Here's the problem with wanting justice. You can't have justice without first making judgments. There is no way you can get to justice without first judging. And so if we're going to be doing some judging, we would prefer that the one doing the judging would be perfect, and nobody's talking about, and always be 100% correct in his judgments, and that would be Jesus, and that's what it's talking about here. He's going to make war against injustice, and that is going to be a good thing. Verse 13, he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. That blood is what saves us from our sin and forgives us from our sin. It's the atoning blood of the sacrifice of the perfect lamb, and he is arrayed in fine linen, white and pure. Uh, we're following, uh, um, I'm sorry, and the name by which he is called is, uh, is called the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Yes, heaven has armies, probably pretty good armies, probably give the United States Army a run for its money. But again, this army is coming to fight for justice. Okay? Verse 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword. That would be his word, which is the Word of God which is why we at Redemption Church value and hold highly the word of God, with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King, and Ki King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So on his robe that he's wearing and on his thigh, it is written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Now, I will tell you, I really am interested in and fascinated with tattoos. I don't have one myself, but I'm very interested in them. I'm a communication guy, I have a degree in communication, I teach communication, and I know that tattoos, the idea behind tattoos is that they communicate something. And my assumption is, is that if you put it in permanent ink on your skin that's going to be there for the rest of your life unless you have thousands and thousands of dollars to remove it with a laser, my guess is that this is something that's important to you and part of your identity, right? And so I like to talk to people about their tattoos, and I find that people are very open to talking to me about their tattoos. As a uh, communication instructor, I try to get students to give informative speeches about their tattoos so that we can understand why they have their tattoos. And I'm correct about the fact that it's important to them. Every person I've ever talked to, I've never had somebody say, oh, this old thing, eh, whatever, doesn't mean anything to me. I've never had that conversation. Every person who has a tattoo has said, yes, this is really important to me wherever it is. It's really important to me. It's part of my identity, and it means a lot to me. Okay? Now, hear me when I say this. I am not necessarily saying that Jesus has a tattoo on his thigh. Okay? This is his resurrected body we're talking about. So we cannot necessarily make the claim that Jesus has a tattoo. I have to say that as a disclaimer for all the parents who are horrified right now that Pastor Frank is saying to the kids, it's okay to get a tattoo, all right? Okay? I'm not necessarily saying that he has a tattoo, but 
we can look at this and say the fact that he has King of Kings and Lord of Lords written on his thigh must be important. Is it a tattoo? Maybe so. Maybe there's a, there's a heavenly tattoo parlor up there where Jesus went in and said, King of Kings, Lord and Lords, give me that baby, okay? 40 bucks, all right? Uh, maybe it's some sort of a special magic marker from heaven. I don't know what it is, but it's written on his thigh. It must be important. By the way, somebody pointed out to me that in the old 19th century cal cavalry, cavalry, okay, the commander always had his name and his rank written on his thigh, and the reason was because he wanted to make sure that everybody else knew that he was the commander of the army. So this is Jesus. He is the king of kings, lord and lords. It is his identity, it is important, and it means everything. And it also means that he is coming again in order to set things right to make things new and to rule with us here on this new heaven where he's going to recreate everything as it should be. So this is a really, really big deal. He's coming back to set things right. And that's where we get hope. And that's where we turn to our last passage. If you turn over to Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 6, this is what Jesus is ultimately coming to do. He was born to die, to be raised again, and then to come again so that he could do this. Chapter 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. That bride language is covenantal language. This is not a transactional contract between us and God. God is doing this because he has coveted, coveted with us that he loves us. He has given us that covenant, and he's going to make all things new. A bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And here you go, verse 4. If this doesn't get you excited, we need to test you for a heartbeat, okay? He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That's where we can hang our hope. Jesus is coming to usher this in. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give them the spring of the water of life without payment. See, there you go. It's not a contract. It's a covenant that he has for us. And that's where we have our hope. And I would suggest to you that hope is really important. Sometimes we don't give hope the credit that it is due as an emotion, but some people would argue, and I think argue rightly, that hope is critical, even essential to our survival as human beings. Uh, Tim Keller, who's a pastor and author, he says this about hope. He says, human beings are hope-shaped creatures. We must have hope in order to survive. Um, Hollywood even gets this right. Uh, my wife and I, Jackie, and our youngest daughter, Dar Darby, who is 15 years old, 
uh, we decided uh, three or four months ago that we were going to read the Hunger Games trilogy together, which we did. We thought that was kind of fun. Yes, we read the Bible together, too. Don't worry about that. But we read the Hunger Games trilogy together. And I know there's some controversy about the Hunger Games and the content and all that stuff. And if you want to email me and talk about it, I'm just going to forward it to Jackie and you can talk to her. But anyway, uh, and then we went and saw the movie last, last week. And I don't remember if this was in the book, but it was in the movie. And I thought it was fairly profound coming out of Hollywood. President Snow is talking to the game master of the Hunger Games. And the game master asks President Snow, he says, why don't you just execute the 24 tributes from the 12 districts? Why, why, if, if, you're, if your idea is to scare them and, into, into getting them to conform, why not just kill them? The fear will motivate them to conform and do what they want to do. And President Snow's answer was profound. He said, the reason is because if one of them wins, then they all have hope, and hope is the only emotion that is actually more powerful than fear. Therefore, hope is a much better motivator than fear is. So even Hollywood gets this correct. But even beyond that, here you go. My best argument for hope actually comes from a guy named Viktor Frankl, who wrote a classic book called Man's Search for Meaning. Has anybody read the Frankl book, Man's Search? I highly recommend this book. Uh, Frankl was a psychiatrist, Austrian, I believe, uh, who ended up in a German concentration camp during World War II. He's one of the few that actually survived. But as a uh, psychiatrist and an academic, he observed things and then later was able to write about what he ob had observed. And he said the most profound thing that came out of this experience was that he was determined to let people know that hope is essential for survival for human beings. That it's nearly as important as air and water and food, that without hope, people will actually perish. And he told this one story that I remember about how um, in the concentration camp, if you think about a concentration camp, there's not a lot to look forward to, right? I mean, the meals weren't any good. Uh, you were lucky if you got one bowl full of watered-down soup a day. It was cold. Uh, the camps were disease-ridden. Um, there was a possibility that you could die any day. There was a possibility they could cart you off and kill you and execute you. There was not a lot to, uh, to look forward to. No Starbucks in the concentration camp. Not a lot to look forward to in the concentration camp. And so cigarettes actually became the most valuable currency of the people who were in the concentration camps. And they were very difficult to get a hold of. And if you were able to get a hold of some cigarettes, even if they were just butts, they would, the, the, the prisoners would actually hoard butts, the little butts, and they would keep lighting them and just try to suck every last little bit of tobacco off of the cigarettes. And it was the only thing they had to look forward to, the only possible pleasure that they could get out of life. And by the way, being a former smoker, I really understand this, okay? To live for that, just that one little drag on the cigarette, it was what gave them something to live for. And so he would watch as these people would hoard these cigarettes in these butts. Well, he also found a pattern with the cigarettes that, that explained to him when he knew that a prisoner was about to die. If he saw, he said he saw this a number of times, if he saw a prisoner go to their bunk or, or their uh, the, the, uh, uh, um, um, blanket where they would sleep at night, if they would get ready for bed and they would pull out their whole stash of cigarettes, their valuable cigarettes, and sit there and smoke all the cigarettes that they had, he knew that they were not going to wake up in the morning, that they would die that night. 
And the reason they did that is because they had given up. They had given up hoping that somehow they were going to make it through this horrendous experience, and so they would spend their last moments of life taking in the only pleasure that they had, and that was smoking their cigarettes. And so Frankel, based on that experience, said, listen, this hope thing is a big deal. You've got to have something to hang on to if you're going to be able to live. So here's what we would suggest. The resurrection of Jesus is what can give us true and lasting hope. Because the resurrection means that he's going to come again and he's going to set things right. And for those of us that follow Jesus, that gives us great hope. And, and, and here's the last thing I want to say about hope because this is really important. It's not just that we have hope, but it's that we hope in the right thing. It's that we hope in the very thing that can actually deliver on its promise. Jesus is the one who can deliver on its promise. You and I can hope in a lot of different things. We can hope in the sons, we can hope in the cardinals, we can hope in karma, we can hope in, in um, reincarnation, we can, we can hope in Seinfeld. Whatever it is that we might hope in, if it's the wrong item that we're placing our hope in, it's not going to deliver. Jesus is the item that can deliver. He is the raised king of kings, lord and lords. He is God, and he is going to set things right. And I would challenge you to place your faith in him. We're going to spend the next four weeks talking about Jesus. If you're new to this, I would encourage you not to walk out of here and reject it out of hand. I would encourage you to just at least give us four weeks to have this conversation with you, and not only just on Sunday morning from up front, but in the, in the lobby out front or during the week. We would love to have that conversation with you over these next four weeks as we conclude this series. In just a few minutes, we're going to have uh, Sean and Tyler come up and lead us into our time of reflection and response, but I want to leave you with this um, little Irish Christian proverb that I think is perfect in light of the resurrection and second coming of Jesus. May today be the best day of your life and the worst day of your future. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for the resurrected King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And it is in him that we place our trust and our hope. And so God, help us to do that today. We thank you for what you've done through your son, and we thank you for what you're doing even now. We ask this and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right.